Truly, he lives. Amen? And it is with that hope that we have gathered here today to celebrate our risen Savior. If you could stand to your feet and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 38 through 41. We praise God for all who have been involved thus far in, in this worship service and preparing our hearts to receive God's word. Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. Last week we concluded our mini-series, four-part series on, on singleness. And now we're going to dive back into the book of Mark, which we've been traveling through for some time. Amen? The first part of Mark, first eight chapters, the author of Mark is, is really trying to uh, pose a question in a reader's heart, and that question is, who is Jesus? And then in Mark chapter 8, we see that the disciples of Jesus seem to finally have been able to answer that question with Peter's confession, as he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So now that the disciples have gotten that point, Jesus has turned his face back to Jerusalem. They are headed back to Jerusalem. And for the rest of the, this question, we are, for the rest of this quest, we'll be learning more about Jesus and his disciples. But specifically, Mark is going to be answering, why did Jesus come? Why did the Messiah come? Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. The precious, authentic, sufficient, inerrant, awesome, magnificent word of God reads. And John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does the, a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. We're going to go to verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth and your word is life. I thank you for your people, those who have been called by your name, for they are your sheep and they know your voice and a stranger they will not follow. We thank you for your grace, which has gotten us to this point to be able to hear your word. And for some, Father God, as we are in the state of Kentucky, for some, the most significant part of their day is going to happen later on when Louisville plays Kentucky. But Father, may you remind us, those who are yours, that the most significant part of the day, perhaps, is right now. As we encounter a living God, as two sides will collide, the flesh and the spirit, as Satan's kingdom of darkness seeks to see, uh, to steal this, this source of light. The biggest war, Father God, that we're on, the biggest battle that we will face each and every day, Lord, is a battle of whether or not we're going to surrender to your word and hear it. 
Help us to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, uh, we want to speak from the topic, denominations, divisions, and the kingdom of God. Denominations, divisions, and the kingdom of God. I've had an argument presented to me before that uh, you may be familiar with, uh, possibly because someone has posed this argument to you, or even because you have made this argument before. And the form of the argument goes a little like this. As I look at the way Christians are divided, with many denominations and many divisions, why should I put my faith in that God? Isn't denominations, divisions, and fractions within the body of Christ proof against the validity of Christianity. In other words, when we look at the body of Christ, there are so many denominations. And if Christianity is real, shouldn't we all be unified? Doesn't the lack of unity within the Christian faith destroy our validity? One article that I read claimed that there are over 30,000 denominations that exist. And even if you include the the tiny sects within some denominations, uh, personally, I do not believe that there are that many denominations. But as Christians, we must face the fact that there are a lot of denominations and that to the outside world, these divisions, these denominations are very make Christianity to be very unattractive. And perhaps you're a non-believer here today. And perhaps that's one of the the many arguments that you have against us as Christians. Well, as we look at today's text and as we will will see, I, I do not believe that the amount of denominations disprove Christianity. The Bible says that fractions within a body of Christ is not a proof that Christianity is not real, but rather it is a proof of something else. The Bible is clear that when divisions happen, it happens because we are sinners. The Bible makes it clear that throughout throughout the scriptures that factions and clans within the body is simply a result of our sinfulness and a result of our idolatry. So it does not prove that Christ is not real. And it does not prove that that even as Christians that we do not love Christ and that we have not been saved by Christ. But rather when factions and divisions occur, it proves that someone is walking in sin and someone is walking in idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 18, Paul makes this clear. And he makes an argument that basically says that Divisions ultimately reveal those who are genuine and those who are mature. And it exposes those who are possibly not mature in Christ or those who are possibly not genuine about their faith. Paul says these words for, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe a certain report. For there must be factions among you, 
listen, in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, James poses this question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? You desire and you do not have, so you murder and so you fight. He says that, that, that the reason that we fight, the reason that we quarrel, the reason that there are denominations and the reason that there are splits within the church is because within us there are passions at war. Within us there are unmet needs that we exalt to the level of idolatry. Instead of worshiping Christ and trusting him and believing that he will make things right, we try to make things right. And we begin to worship that idea. We begin to worship what we want. And we murder. We fight. We bicker. We get in our groups. We get in our clans. So when there is a fight, when there is an, an ungodly response, to an unmet need. When there is a fight, there is normally a deep craving that is going on in our hearts. And, and that's how denominations and divisions occur on a macro level. But, but also, that's, that's how fights occur on a, ma- on a micro level. That's why there's fights in our homes and fights with coworkers. One online article that I read said this. The rise of denominations within the Christian faith can be traced back to the Protestant Reformation. The movement to reform the Roman Catholic Church during the 16th century led to four major divisions or traditions within Protestantism. And these four divisions are Lutheran, Reform, Anabaptist, and Anglican. And from these four denominations... Many denominations grew over the centuries. This article went on to point out that there were original differences in denominations. And he noted, and the the writer noted this. The point of these divisions was never over whether or not Christ was Lord and Savior, but rather honest differences of opinion by godly, albeit flawed, people seeking to honor God and retain doctrinal purity according to their consciousness and their understandings of God's word. So as I said earlier, denominations, fractions occur because of idolatry and because we are sinners. But sometimes denominations and fractions occurred because godly people looked at God's word and came to two separate conclusions on an issue. And these godly people were sinners. And because we are sinners, we cannot perfectly know everything. And they split and went in different ways. So in essence, what I'm saying is this. That as we think about fractions and as we think about denominations, we have to ask ourselves the question, uh, is, is Jesus pleased with it? And what does Jesus have to say about it? John chapter 17, verse 21 through 22, we hear a prayer of Jesus that reveals the heart of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus prayed. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. 
that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and loved them even as you love me. So Jesus, in what is known as a high priestly prayer, I want to encourage you to go home and read it. Jesus is praying to the Father. It is an amazing prayer with some amazing truths in it. But Jesus, in this prayer, he prays for his followers. And he's praying that we might be perfectly one. And he says, I I want the body to be, Lord, perfectly one for a reason so that so that the world may know that that they believe in you and that you love them. So Jesus clearly tells us in, in John chapter 17 that he does not desire there to be any denomination. That his desire is is that that we all would be on one accord. In fact, Paul picks this up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, as he is, is talking to the church, and he reminds the church at Ephesus that there is one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God of all, who is over all, and who through all, all belongs. So Paul goes on and says to the church at Ephesus, as he continues that chapter, he, after pointing out that there is one God and there is one church and there is one body, he goes on to talk about how even though there is one church and one body, there is great diversity among the body. That God has given us all many gifts and he is calling the church at Ephesus to see that we are called to celebrate diversity while keeping unity. And when unity is not kept, we should know that that something has went wrong. Something has went wrong. This text that we're looking at today, uh, Jesus, he squashes the first attempt of a denomination to be born. He he squashes the the first attempt of a denomination to be born. And what we learn in this text, the the big idea that we want to hang everything on is this, is is that the kingdom of God is is bigger. It is bigger than our circle and our personal agendas. The kingdom of God is bigger than our circles and our personal agenda. Let's look at the text. The Bible says, starting at verse 38, and John said to them, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop them because he was not following us. So we see that John makes the point and he is making a statement to Jesus. And he's basically saying, Jesus, we were traveling and we we saw a miracle take place. And what was the miracle? The miracle was that someone else who was not in their circle, who was not amongst the, the 12 disciples, were casting out demons doing exorcisms. Now remember, Mark starts his gospel with Jesus doing great works, and everyone is wondering, who is this man that has such authority? And then in Mark chapter 6, we remember, Jesus begins to to delegate that authority to the disciples. And they go out two by two into the villages, and they are able to to do healings, and they are able to to do exorcisms. So, So the name of Jesus is now traveling throughout the villages and throughout the region, 
because Jesus has in some ways multiplied himself. But now it's not just the 12 that are doing miracles. There seems to be someone else who is standing up saying that they are with Jesus and, 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 and a follower of Jesus. And he is able to do miracles. And John, the beloved disciple, saying, what's going on? He says, Jesus, we tried to stop him. We tried to make him quit. We tried to shut him up. Now, when we look at this and we look at uh, John's statement, we, we could conclude that they were really genuinely concerned about the kingdom of God and the mission of Christ. We could. We could say that these disciples were concerned that someone who did not have authority to do what they were doing was stepping outside of, of what Jesus wanted. We could conclude that these were, this was a godly concern. And while that may be possible, uh, personally, as I look at the context of this and, and, and watch the flow of this story, I do not believe that that was what was going on. Again, I'm not questioning their motives, in a sense, of just looking at this and saying, I know their motives, because we can never question someone's motives. Uh, we, can, we can try to draw conclusions, but if we don't really know and haven't asked that person, or really don't see sound evidence for that, we, we can't do it. We get ourselves in a lot, of, a lot of problems sometimes because we do question it. But I believe that this text uh, gives us a hint into what was going on in their heart by the way in which Mark organized this chapter. See, earlier on in the chapter, we see something, a couple of things happening. And I believe that this is what's leading to their concerns. Early on in the chapter, we see the disciples failing to do pretty much exactly what this man was able to do. In Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, the Bible talks about some, the, the disciples and how they were unable to heal a boy who was very sick and who was even uh, uh, maybe demon-filled, who, who had an unclean spirit in him. Jesus is on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they get to see a, a glorious thing as what we call uh, the transfiguration of Jesus. And while Jesus is on the mountain, the other disciples are trying to do kingdom work. And there's a, a boy who is demon-possessed. And the Bible says that when Jesus came off the mountain with the other disciples, that the boy's father runs to Jesus and he says, Jesus, your disciples, they just tried to get this demon out of my son, but they failed. They failed. And, and the father looks at Jesus and, and out of remarkable faith, he begins to talk to Jesus and pray to Jesus that Jesus would heal him and do a miracle. They failed. To do an exorcism. And Jesus says why they failed. They failed to do an exorcism because they did not pray. The, Jesus looked at the disciples and said, the reason that you were unsuccessful was because these kind come out by much prayer. And some translations say by much fasting, which means that they were trying to get a, a miracle done. They were trying to advance the kingdom of God without seeking the face of God. They were not standing on the authority of Jesus. Rather, they were standing on their own authority, and it failed horribly. They thought that their own works could get the job done. Then right after that, the scene uh, switches. 
So, so Jesus teaches them, and he says the reason that you failed was because of your lack of prayer, your lack of seeking my face. And then as they're walking, another problem occurs. An argument breaks out. And, and what they're arguing over was who was the greatest. They just failed at doing an exorcism, and now they're behind Jesus arguing about who was the most important. Jockeying for positions. Because they saw Jesus as a king, and, and they're starting to understand that he's the Messiah. And if he's the king and he's the Messiah, somebody has to sit on his right hand and on his left. Somebody's going to get an upgrade in the kingdom of this world. And they're arguing who that is. Who's that going to be and who has the right to do that? So, so now we see that this transition has taken place. And they see someone else who has just been, been successful in ministry. Who is, who is doing it right and who's getting it right. And they look and they say, stop it. You can't do it because you're not with us. So as we look at the text, I conclude that the reason that they probably really wanted to stop this man was because they did not want him to take their place. They were probably jealous of his success. They were worried about their own kingdom. Their kingdom was at stake. Their importance was at stake. As Christians, sometimes that sometimes that's us, isn't it? Sometimes we can hide behind spiritual reasons why we don't support another Christian. Why we don't support what someone else in the church is doing. A lot of undercover hating going on, isn't it? We get in our groups, we put, become inclusive, and we're, we're fighting for our territory, we're fighting to look important in front of people, and we're, we're fighting for titles, and we're fighting for positions, and, and we can deceive ourselves and, and make ourselves believe that the reason that we're fighting is because we really care about God's kingdom, and we really think we can do it right. But underneath all of that hiding and all of that fighting is a desire to be praised, a desire to be important. Sometimes we tear down people's ministries because we wish we had their ministry. Sometimes we poke at people's gifts because we wish we had their gifts. Sometimes we, we hate on the way of mother parents because maybe we wish we had that many children. We, we do that. It's sinful and it's wrong. Jesus here is, is, is going to correct this and show them why this is wrong, why they are, uh, uh, should not stop this person. One day, uh, so it was a long time ago, a few, probably about five years ago, I was having a conversation with a, a couple ministers who is in no way related to this church <laughs> uh, or anybody that you would know, amen. And uh, we were having a conversation and uh, they brought up a minister, uh, a pastor who had a, a pretty large church and a really successful ministry. I didn't know much about the church. I didn't really know anything about the pastor. 
But I remember over dinner, them talking and constantly poking holes at his ministry, poking holes at him. They talked about how he was money hungry. They talked about how he didn't preach the gospel. And they talked about how people weren't being discipled. And I remember listening to that, and, and I remember my opinion of this person and of this church being shaped. A couple years later, by God's grace, I had the opportunity to meet that pastor. Um, had the opportunity to spend uh, uh, almost a week with that pastor. And I'll tell you, that pastor is one of the most godliest men I know. I got to go to his home. Has a, a, a big church, a mega church. And he lived very humbly. The whole time I was with him, he, he didn't mention money one time. In fact, when he did talk about money, he talked about the importance of giving most of what we had away because we couldn't take it to heaven. I began to listen to his sermons online and I was thinking, this brother preaches the gospel very clearly. Quite honestly, I think he does a better job than me and other guys we were, who we're talking about. What, what was possibly going on in their hearts? Maybe they heard this from someone else and they just passed it along. Maybe they desired his ministry, his gifts, and his talents. Proverbs 18 became true to me uh, through, through that instance. The writer in the book of Proverbs says that uh, uh, really a fool listens to one side of a story and runs with it. A wise person does some investigating. Is there someone that you're jealous of who is in the body of Christ, who is a Christian, who you tear down with your words, who you try not to encourage because you don't want them to succeed? Are there denominations and other Christians, maybe on your job, maybe they're your siblings, maybe they're not Baptists. Do you look down upon them and talk down to them because they don't do church like you do? And, it, and if you do, is it because you don't think that they're not advancing God's kingdom or is it because you just want to be right? And you just want to be superior. Do your coworkers at your job, when they see you and another Christian interacting, do they sense that you all are brothers and sisters in Christ, that you love each other deeply despite not going to the same church, despite not being a part of the same denomination? Or is there a coldness there? Do you talk about that person to other co-workers and turn your nose up at them when they're not around? Do you try to promote yourself over them? As we think about these things, we want to remind ourselves that, that as Christians, we, we are not to be in rivalry with, with one another. We're not to tear one another down. We should not be trying to stop one another in ministry. We should be propelling each other and serving the Lord. We should be protecting God's kingdom and not our kingdom. We should be building God's kingdom and not our kingdom. 
Jesus here shows us a couple of reasons why the disciples, why it was not wise for them to try to stop this man. Really quickly. Look at verse 39. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon, soon afterward to speak evil of me. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. In essence, Jesus says, don't stop him because he is using my name correctly. He is using my name correctly. What, is, what does Jesus mean when he says, my name? Uh, a name of a person back then represented the very character of a person. In fact, in the ancient world, parents would name their children out of even an experience that they had in bearing that child or what they hoped that child to be. Not only did it represent the character of a person, but it represented when you came in someone's name, you came in that person's authority. So for an ambassador of a king, he would stand and proclaim what the king told him. He would say, I come in the name of the king, meaning that I come representing him and I come standing in his authority because he has delegated that authority to me. Jesus says, no one who, who, who is able to do a mighty work in my name will soon have to be able to speak about me. Jesus is saying that, in essence, he is giving this person this, a stamp of approval. He is saying that this man's ministry is approved by me. It is genuine. Now, there are some cases where people were able to do miracles and where people came in Jesus' name, and it wasn't genuine. In Matthew, we read that in the Sermon of the Mount where Jesus talks about how everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is, is not mine. And just because you do miracles, it does not mean that you are mine. It says that those people one day will stand before God and he will say, depart from me, I do not know you. But it appears here, and even as we look at the context, as we will see in a, in a little bit, that this person, Jesus considered a genuine disciple, a child of his. So he's saying, don't stop him because he's using my name correctly. Now notice what he did not say. He did not say, do not stop him because he's perfect or, or stop him because he's imperfect. You know, people who are, as Christians, we're not perfect. And we are our sinners. And just because we're imperfect and, and we're sinners, it does not mean that we should not do God's will and, and carry forth his agenda. If a person is repentant and, 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 and doing what they need to be doing and, and can be affirmed by the body of Christ, they should go forth. But he is using God's name correctly. He is standing in authority of Jesus in the right way. Sometimes as Christians, we separate ourselves from other believers because they may believe a different doctrine than us, or they don't believe exactly what we believe. Maybe they believe in spiritual gifts, or uh, maybe they're more charismatic in their worship, or maybe they're more quiet in their worship. And sometimes we, out of pride, we look at them, and, and, some, and we can get an arrogance about ourselves. And maybe we don't stop them directly, but maybe we talk about them to other people as if their ministry and their life isn't valid because they don't believe what we believe. If they are farther in the kingdom of God, if what they are doing is pointing to Jesus, this crucified Savior, 
then we need not to stop them. We need to encourage them. Now, as we look at partnering with churches, and as we look at other denominations and who we fellowship with, even as Christians, even as those who may be dating someone who does not believe in exactly what what you believe, I, I do believe that there needs to be some agreement on some important things what we call first-tier things. We do need to stop people who do not believe that God is who he said he is in the Bible. Who do not believe that God is omnipresent. Who do not believe that he's omniscient. Who do not believe that he's omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful. Who do not believe that he's sovereign. We do need to hinder people ministry who is teaching that, that God, open theism, that God is, is, is not involved in people's life, that he just started the world and started the earth, and he's just watching aimlessly and helplessly wondering what's going to happen. We don't need to partner ourselves with those people. We don't need to partner ourselves with, with people who believe that, that you can save yourself by works. That if you just be good enough and do enough good things, then you will be saved. We don't need to partner ourselves with people like that. We don't need to partner ourselves with people who believe in universalism, who believe that at the end, no matter who you are, that you will be saved eventually. That's not who we partner with. We don't partner ourselves with people who do not believe the gospel of Jesus, who do not believe that Jesus is salvation and he has purchased our salvation on Calvary's cross. Slow. Very slow to partner ourselves with people who do not believe in a triune God after they have been taught about this triune God of Scripture. Denominations and fractions. Husbands, when was the last time you got your wife a cup of water? Wives, are, are, are you serving your husbands in this way? Or in your house, is there a constant faction, a, a constant division, a, a constant war to see who's greatest, who is right, who's the smartest, who is to be most valued? Are you counting yourself as nothing? Submitting your heart to the Lord in spite of that person because you love the Lord and because you can love that person Through grace. Do you feel that people have to serve you? That they owe it to you? John chapter 13. See, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Let's turn there real quick and we'll wrap this up. John chapter 13. Very humbling saying. Look at verse 33 through 35. Jesus, the king of the universe, who became incarnate, born of a virgin, is leading these men. They're following him everywhere. And he drops to his knees with a basin and a towel, and he washes their nasty, dirty feet. Men who he knows are sinners, men who he knows will flee 
when he gets in trouble, men who he knows are jockeying for position, he washes their feet. And after washing their feet, he gives them a new commandment. Listen, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus was showing them what that love looked like when he washed their feet, but he also was showing them what that love ultimately looked like when he died in their place on Calvary's cross. Are we above this type of love to people, to to sinful people? We shouldn't be. As we look at John, he he says that that people will know that you are minds by the love you have for one another. At your job, non-believers, those who do not know Jesus, should be able to see that the way that you love your coworker, who may be a part of another denomination, who may speak in tongues, who may have shorter worship services, because Pastor Jamal doesn't preach there, <laughs> do they sense that despite your differences, that you love them deeply? And is the way that you and your coworker loving each other at work in the midst of those non-believers making those non-believers thirsty? To know Jesus. Here's the key to doing this. Jesus uses a term here in John. He calls them little children. Little children. And when we look at the gospel of Mark. And what we've been reading today. uh, It's by no accident. That right before this section. Jesus. Uses the example of a child. To explain. The kingdom of God. Listen, verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst, in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus takes a literal child, puts him on his Lap, and he says, whoever receives a child receives me. And while he was talking about that child, he also was talking about the disciples, his disciples. He often talks about his disciples as children. Why children? Why whoever receives a child? Because a child is, is a person who is defenseless. Children, they can't defend themselves. Children don't own anything. Children are completely dependent. And those who have been made new in Christ, are those who understand that they are completely dependent on God. We are those who understand that we don't own anything. Even the good things that we're good at, they're gifts from God. The house that we live in, they're gifts from God. We don't supply our own needs. God supplies our needs. Therefore, as Christians, we should be humble and understand that we are children. We are not grown. You are not grown. 
Bible says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit are those who are not rich in of themselves, those who understand that they cannot save themselves by their good works. It is those who are constantly coming to God with humility. Humility means to, to make yourself know. As C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not having an attitude of self-pity and timidity, but rather humility is thinking of yourself less. We will serve other people, and we will not be so easy to argue over things that don't matter, and we will not go into our little clans if we see ourselves in a way that Jesus presents us as children. Children, you're not deep. I'm not deep. We're kids. And that person that you want to separate yourself from is a child. They may be grown, they may have it all together, they may be a CEO, but they're a child. Your husband or your wife, in the eyes of God, is a child. And just like with children, we need to be patient with one another. And when we have fits and throw fits with one another and at one another, if we see ourselves as childs, we should be able to play together in an hour. Do you see yourself as a child? Do you see yourself as spiritually defenseless, spiritually poor, and spiritually lacking status without Jesus? Through Jesus, we are rich. Through Jesus, we can have salvation. It's interesting that Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why does Jesus say they receive me. Because when you receive someone, not based on what they can do for you, or their position, or the fact that they have it all together, in essence, you're receiving Jesus because your heart is susceptible to the gospel. See, Jesus, who is big, who was the creator of this universe, humbled himself and became a child. He was held by Mary in her arms, though he was holding the whole world together. And the Bible says that this Jesus emptied himself, even to the point of death, yes, the death of the cross. We do not and have not truly received Jesus who died in humility and humiliation for us. One of the ways we know if we've received Jesus is if we're able to receive other people who don't have status, who are broken and who are poor. The kingdom of God is to have life with God, under God's rule and under God's care. Jesus died for you while you were helpless in order to give you hope. Are you willing to die for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are helpless, but who have hope. And not only that, are you willing to serve those who don't know Christ in order that they would know Christ? Or is life about you? When you leave here, when I leave here, we're going to fail at doing this. In our own strength, we will fail at trying to honor each other. We will fail at trying to honor our coworkers. 
We will fail at trying to be good Christians if we're doing it in our own strength. Jesus did it for us so that we would not have to meticulously worry about doing it. As we look to Jesus in faith and as we look to his strength and his power and trust in his spirit, he will enable us to do it. So don't leave here looking to yourself saying, I have to do this, I have to do this. Oh, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm just going to give up because eventually you will. Look to Jesus and say, Jesus, give me a new heart. Help me to see myself as a child and help me to serve others selflessly. Help me not to be divisive. Not to fight for my own kingdom. If a football team is unified, it does not mean that everyone's playing the same position. It does not mean that everyone's going to the, but it does mean that everyone is going to the same goal line. Just like if an orchestra is harmonious, it does not, it's not harmonious because they are all playing the same instrument. They're harmonious because they're all playing the same song. And when a choir sings in great harmony, it's not because they are singing the same part, but rather it's because they are reading their part and committed to the same song. This is the process of unity. And it's the same for us. We are diverse in the body of Christ, but we must be working towards the same goal. And that goal is to encourage others and to further God's kingdom. We only would do that by becoming little children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We pray, Father God, that you 